It was my good friend Ernie Elder, a minister, who gave me the book, Henry Nouwen's The Return of the Prodigal Son. Maybe you know it. It's a meditation on the text that we read, but also a meditation on Rembrandt's classic, The Return of the Prodigal Son. Nouwen tells the story about how when he first saw just a print of this, he was deeply moved. And because he had connections, a private viewing was arranged at a museum in St. Petersburg, Russia. He was plopped down in a red velvet chair right in front of Rembrandt's masterpiece and for hours, and so the sun, of course, moved across the room, and since Rembrandt was a painter of light, he took in different perspectives. Biblical scholars would not be surprised at that, We call it the prodigal son. We we put a name on it, but Luke doesn't. Jesus doesn't. Because the, the moment you name it this, well, then it ceases to be about that. And you can really find lots of perspectives. A sociologist, she studied 47 sermons that had been preached on this. And while there was great variation, they all fell into three categories those about the younger boy, those about the older brother, and those about the father. Not surprising. Well, I don't have a red velvet chair to plop you in, although I guess the cushions are pretty close. And the idea is, what if we sit in front of this masterpiece and take not just one closer look, but three? Because my hunch is that all of those perspectives we can relate to in one way or another. And we might as well start with that young boy. You know, he says, give me my share of the estate that will belong to me. It's future tense. And some have suggested that what he's saying is, Dad, I wish you were dead. And others say, no, 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 that's too harsh. He just wants what is coming to him. But either way, once he gets it, the clock starts ticking and it's not very long before he is off and running. The Bible calls it dissolute living. I don't know anybody that calls it that you could fill in the gaps maybe with your own journey. But things happen. He runs out of money, he runs out of friends, about the same time, really strange coincidence. And there's a famine in the land, and he goes to work for a pig farmer, which is about as low as it gets for a Jewish boy, and even the pig's food starts to look good. And that is the bottom of the story. That's as low as it gets. It's not just there's a famine in the land. There is a famine in his soul. It's like a scene out of the grapes of wrath. That is his soul. It is dry. It is dusty. And at the very bottom is when Luke writes one of the best lines in his gospel. But when he came to himself, when he came to himself, when he, when he realized this is This is not who I'm supposed to be. This is not where I'm supposed to be. And so he starts packing up and heading back home and practicing his speech. He is practicing it over and over, headed home. The biblical scholar Mark Allen Powell says that if you ask American church-going folks, so what's going on here? What's the dynamic at work? They will pretty much to a T say, well, you can use different terms, but... He sowed his wild oats, he was a party animal, he got what was coming, he made his bed, he's going to lie in it, you know, just the rebellious thing. But then Powell was surprised when he took the same story to other parts of the world and how they interpreted this. 
in the former Soviet Union during a Bible study, he said to them, so what, what's going on here? What's the dynamic? And instead of that dynamic, they said, it's obvious. There was a famine in the land. And Powell said, well, yeah, I, I know there was a famine, but what's going on here? That's what's going on here, they said. There was a famine. He was victim like everyone else of a famine. Powell then went to some African nations where they said, no, 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 it's about the failure of the village. And he said, what? And they said, no one would take him in. That's the failure of the village. It's possible you could read this story of the young boy as too much time in the casinos, losing home, losing family, losing job, you know, sowing wild oats, and maybe it can play out that way, but that is not the only narrative. It could be depression, faraway country called depression, longing for home. It could be a prescription, and OxyContin has become a way of life. It could be losing your job, and before you know it, your home. Not every failure comes from one's own fault. Not everything is our own fault. It, it, could be, it could be soldiers in Afghanistan who are just longing for home. You know, telling stories like, I remember back home on Memorial Day, we would always... There is something in all of us that longs to be home. And some of us could sit in a red velvet chair for a long time thinking about all the places we have been. Longing to be home. But if you sit there long enough... The light shifts, and you can't ignore the older brother. I mean, Luke doesn't. In fact, the way he sets this parable up, you kind of get the idea he wanted to draw attention to the older brother. This is one of three panels of parables, kind of like in the museum, a triptych, right? Three panels, three parables. The way it starts, earlier in the chapter, Jesus goes to eat with outcasts, and the religious folks kind of have their arms crossed, And they're asking, why do you eat with those people? And then he tells three parables. This is the third one. The first one is about a shepherd that has 100 sheep. One of them goes missing. He scours the countryside, finds it, puts it on his shoulders, comes whistling back and has a party. Because if you have something lost and you find it, that's what you do. You have a party. So then he tells a second one about a woman who has 10 coins. She loses one of them. She sweeps the house. She finds it. She calls her friends and has a party. Because if something's lost and found, you have to have a party. So then he tells this third one about a boy who's lost and found and they have a party. And that's when the older brother comes in from the back 40, riding on the John Deere. That's in the Greek, trust me on that. And and when he turns off the engine, he hears music and dancing. And he goes... And he looks in the window, and sure enough, they're scooting around the dance floor. They've got those silly little caps on, you know, with the rubber band that cuts into your chin. They've got chips and dip and fatted calf. They are having a party. Well, he's not going in. No way. So the dad comes out, and the whole conversation happens on the porch of the church. The brother says, you know... He squandered it with prostitutes, which it doesn't say that and maybe indicates what the brother would do if he could take off. 
but they have this interesting vocabulary tussle. The father keeps saying, your brother. And he keeps saying, this son of yours. And they just can't quite get on the same page. And the whole thing happens on the porch. Does he go in or does he not go in? Does he just stay out there? I mean, everybody else in the village that has watched this dysfunctional family for years, they're inside having a party. But the older brother, does he go in or does he stay out? C.S. Lewis says that at a moment like that, the angels of God hold their breath to see what we will choose. And I have this foggy memory in my childhood memory bank of us making a tree house and then pulling the rope up and saying, no one else. Why did we do that? What worries me is, did we ever do it on the porch of the church? You know, act like bouncer instead of usher. But if you sit there long enough with this parable, you can't ignore the father. The way Luke starts the story, there was a man who had two sons. Maybe it's about the father. If, if we've called this thing anything, we've called it the parable of the prodigal son, thinking that the word prodigal meant rebellious, when really it means extravagant or lavish. What if it's the parable of the prodigal father, lavish enough to throw an extravagant banquet for a wayward boy? In the first century, everything was about shame and honor. And this dad has been shamed, but he doesn't care. He's so glad to have his boy back. When my friend Ernie gave me the book, he said, look, look at the painting on the cover, the Rembrandt. I looked at it, and he said, no, keep looking. And you can Google it when you get home. There's, there's some people on the edge of it kind of watching, probably the older brother and servants. And, of course, the boy is there. He's on his knees. And the dad has his two hands on his shoulders, blessing him, welcoming him home. And Ernie said, keep looking. And then he told me, he says, look at the hands. One of them looks like the hand of a father, but the other looks like the hand of a woman. And some have surmised that maybe it says something about the mother who does not show up in the story. Or maybe the feminine aspects of God who is mother of us all. It's hard to know. I mean, paintings, parables, you have to figure these things out. Probably when we think about this parent figure, we picture this Jewish man with the beard and the robe and the sandals. And that works. But I have another image. I'm picturing a woman She's sitting in a kitchen. She has a cup of coffee, country and western station playing on the radio. She has a picture of her child on her table, almost as an icon. And every once in a while, she pulls the curtains and looks down the driveway. When the phone rings, she jumps. She looks at the caller ID because she says, you never know. You never know. Can you picture that woman? Her name is Grace. 